Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Brian Misterly. He's the founder and CEO of Invrix, a leading provider of traffic data and analytics, covering more than 60 countries around the world. Brian, welcome to World of DAS. Well, great. Thank you, Warren, for having me. Now, you are a big proponent of what's called the automated, connected, electric, and shared vehicles. Some people call that ACEs. And you've done a lot of thinking about the future of transportation. Before we dive into that, how do you think the world plays out over the next decade? Well, we're big believers in what we call mobility as a service, meaning with the ACEs basically evolving, what's going to happen is you're going to end up with these automated, electric, clean vehicles that can drop off and pick people up wherever they want to go and really deliver mobility on demand. So we go from a world where the vast majority of people have individually owned vehicles they drive themselves that are internal combustion engine to a world where mobility is delivered on demand through essentially automated robo-taxis. Why is it important that they're electric? Is it important just because from the environmental standpoint, or is there some sort of reason for these automated vehicles that it's a better fit for them to be electric? In most cities, obviously, pollution gets to be a big issue, especially cities like New York and LA and Beijing. So the electrification of the automotive industry primarily is driven by the need for cleaner energy, which, of course, is dependent on the grid. And some states have very clean grids and some don't. So at the end of the day, there needs to be an evolution of the grid in addition to the evolution of the drivetrain of the vehicle. Got it. In the terms of ACEs, where are we at at each pillar of mobility? Where do you think things are today? Are we in inning one? Are we in inning four in one of these? Where are we at? Let me take them one by one and do them a little bit out of order. So the first is shared vehicles. So I would say we're in the seventh inning there of the game because there's a lot of shared vehicles, obviously Uber and Lyft. There's different models in terms of how you can share. Now you see more and more peer-to-peer sharing of vehicles and things like that. I've done peer-to-peer sharing for rental cars. Yeah, so there's more that'll happen, but at the end of the day, the model is set and it's growing, it's expanding. In terms of connected vehicles, you now have over half the vehicles shipping in the United States and and Europe that are connected in some way, meaning they're basically providing information over the internet. I had thought there would be like 100% of new vehicles. You're saying only half of the vehicles coming off the line today? It's only about half of the new vehicles. I mean, some fleets like General Motors does a very good job connecting theirs. Obviously, Teslas are very well connected. But yeah, there's still about half the vehicles that are shipping now that are not connected at all in any way. Okay, got it. Interesting. Third is electric. This year, 2022, car drivers putting in about 5% of vehicles shipping this year will be electric. That will grow rapidly as more and more OEMs start putting out more vehicles into the market that are electric. You see almost every single major OEM committed to electrification. So that will grow pretty substantially. And then the final one, which is the automated autonomous vehicles. There are autonomous vehicles right now in production. Waymo has services now in Phoenix and some other cities. There's pilots going on all over the place. But this is a little bit of the 80-20 rule where it's easy to, in sunlight with great conditions for an automated vehicle to pick you up on a well-mapped road and drop you off. But it's very difficult to solve that last 20%, which is when there's snow, when there's rain, when it's a gravel road, those kind of things. So you'll see it grow in terms of Urban area. Phoenix and a planned community. Phoenix usually doesn't snow and it can pick you up on your door and bring you to a small number of routes, let's say the grocery store or something like that. It's going to work really well, but not yet ready for all the permutations that could exist in travel. That's right. Exactly. Okay. Interesting. 
what's the barrier to getting data for these vehicles? There has to be some sort of common standard, I imagine, for them to talk to one another if we're going to have all these automated vehicles on the road. Or do you think that's not necessary? Do you think we can get to automated vehicles that are self-driving without having to talk to all the other vehicles? I'm not a big fan of basically V2V or vehicle-to-vehicle communication, simply because it's a bit of a chicken and the egg problem. Unless every other vehicle is connected and telling you that it's stopping, it's very hard, for instance, for your vehicle. Do you think even if we can get 20% to do this, it just doesn't matter? It won't really do anything? Well, I think the data that's critical are things like, oh, I know that this road is closed two miles up ahead, so my vehicle needs to reroute. Cameras on the vehicle that are basically recognizing, oh, there's a person crossing the street, I need to stop. That type of data is critical. There's certain types of data about road conditions, but basically processing the data on the vehicle around camera detection and LIDAR that are super critical to these autonomous vehicles. I don't necessarily think they have to talk to one another because I think cameras, LIDAR basically makes up for that. Are there data things that we need to get to really get to where we need? People have talked about data within the roads where the road itself is gathering data and we make that a public good, or the street signs or stoplights are gathering data, we make some of those public goods, or are there other data about understanding core road conditions? Where do we need to go to make it much easier so that we can get to autonomous vehicles faster? I think some of the key things are around what we call essentially curbside management. So think of an autonomous vehicle basically doing pickups and drop-offs. It needs to park somewhere when it's not in use. It needs to know where it can park. If it's going to drop off in front of a busy area like an airport, it needs to know where the restricted zones are, what rules it needs to obey in terms of doing drop-offs and pickups. So that data turns out to be very important for mobility as a service. I don't think necessarily the roads need to communicate that because, again, that requires infrastructure, which just doesn't exist today. I think that's going to be collected by a variety of data providers to help these things manage, as well as the data that the vehicles are connecting, camera data and things integrated with these third-party data sets, help them get to where they need to be. Do you see a scenario where you can ultimately have these cars being charged by the roads and the roads could help charge it? And that could be a public good or something like that, that if you're driving, you're automatically getting charged? Or is that something that you think has any legs at all, like people have been talking about it? Or do you think it's just more science fiction? Half and half. The idea that the road is going to charge the vehicle while the vehicle is moving is highly unlikely just given the infrastructure needed, the road configuration, all that. What will happen, though, are basically induction chargers. Just like you can charge your phone by sticking it on top of an induction station or an induction pad, you can do the same thing with a car. What I see is these vehicles, when they're not in use, will go to these designated areas. They'll just park in a certain spot, and they can basically induction charge the batteries by parking on top of without having to put a plug into it or something like that. Exactly. Since there's so that means you don't need a person to go do it or something. Correct. Interesting. That's cool. Now, what about if we think about broadly autonomous vehicles? Do you have any view on light flight vehicles, drones that can carry humans and stuff like that? There's a lot of innovation happening in that space right now. I was at a conference about a month ago and I was blown away by what are called the VTOL, the vertical takeoff and landing providers that are working on these big drones that carry people. The first production of that actually goes into effect in 2023. So you're going to have production only in a couple of cities trying out flying you from, say, Manhattan to the airport at LaGuardia or to Newark. But essentially, the technology is there. They'll start to go in production. We'll see how they work in terms of basically cost benefit. They won't be automated. And why would they be better than a helicopter, for instance? Why are people so bullish on it? Well, they're cheaper and safer. 
most of these drones have four different propellers, much like a handheld drone would. They tend to be much more cheaper to operate because they're electric. They're not using gas and they don't require necessarily as skilled a driver as you would need for a helicopter. So they're cheaper to put into production and easier to operate. That makes sense. What do you think about things like scooters or segways? Let's say you're trying to go, let's say, between a fourth of a mile to two miles or something like that. There doesn't seem to be a good solution in most places for that. The micro transit or essentially the micro mobility, there's an opportunity here essentially for last mile. So if I'm taking a train from point A to point B, but I still have a mile to go to get to the building I'm trying to get to, a scooter or a bike makes a lot of sense. In some cities, obviously you've seen this in Europe and in China where Bikes are very well deployed, they're electric, they're well managed. That turns out to be a very good alternative. And where it's a public good or where you pay for it? No, no, you pay for it. Just like an Uber Lyft, you walk up and you basically swipe your phone or a credit card and it unlocks the bike for you and you can take it from point A to point B. The challenge is it doesn't work everywhere. I'm originally from Detroit. There's a lot of snow in Detroit. You're not going to be taking a scooter or bike through the snow. I currently live in Seattle. We have a lot of rain. I may not want to take a scooter in the rain. There's areas where it works. There's areas where it doesn't work. And again, it only works for certain types of trip. I'm going to take my kids to the soccer game. I'm not going to take a bike. There's a place for everything. And certainly micromobility around scooters and bikes and other things like the electric Vespas that I'm now seeing. There's a big need for those. There's sometimes a tension between car-centric policies and anti-car policies. And I know we can maybe have a little bit of both, but where do you fall on that tension axis? Well, I think it's really unfortunate because you have a lot of cities right now that are very anti-car, trying to do everything they can to push people into other modes of transportation. That's unfortunate because at the end of the day, the consumer wins. The consumer will get what the consumer wants and the consumer wants flexibility Transit works certain places. Like I said, New York, very well developed in terms of its transit system, cities like London, D.C. But again, there's other cities where it doesn't work that well or because of weather conditions, these other modes don't work. So again, consumer gets to decide and we need a variety. You need transit for certain applications. You need micro transit. So these mobility as a service type of vehicles that can deliver two, four, six people at a time from point A to point B. And you need things like bikes and scooters. The more flexibility there is, the more choice people are going to have. And the consumer ultimately gets to decide. It is not really up to the cities because people are going to do what they want to do. It does seem like in some cities, whether it be Chicago or New York or something like that, you could use underground things a little bit more for walking or for biking to be able to move much, much quicker without having to deal with stopping for the roads and stuff. They certainly do it for subways, but they don't actually do it usually that much for transit. Why is it only for subways? Just because it's so expensive? Yeah. I mean, again, if you think about the cities that deployed subway systems and have done it in critical mass, they were built early on. Boston, DC, New York, London. Whereas today, given sort of land use, given environmental requirements and things like that, it's very, very difficult to build now from scratch a subway system or extend a subway system underground given all the digging, tunneling, and infrastructure that already exists in the city. So that's really the big challenge in terms of having massive deployment of subways and trains underground at this point. Now, if there's Less outright ownership and more vehicle sharing. How does that affect the total number of vehicles? Do you think it massively contracts the number that we need? Yes, exactly. So if you think about what's really happening is we're going from an asset, a vehicle that's very underutilized. I use my vehicle for about 20 minutes a day since I live and work about 10 minutes from 
each other. Most people drive maybe half an hour to work, so their vehicles only used an hour a day. Well, if you start using mobility as a service and these vehicles have a much higher utilization doing pickups and drop-offs, then you need a lot less vehicles. Ultimately, if you look forward over the next decade, two decades, there's no doubt in my mind that you're going to see a decrease in the number of vehicles that are needed in terms of the roadways because they're much more highly utilized. So how does that affect the economy? What are the second and third order effects? I imagine the vehicles get more expensive because they've got a lot of other stuff. There's a whole maintenance thing that happens, but there might be maybe not as much need for these huge factories that we have building cars. How do you think that affects all the things going forward? So in terms of the cost of the vehicle itself, there's a lot more, obviously, computing power needed on the vehicle, which you would think raises cost. But at the same time, electric vehicles are a lot cheaper to make. There's a lot fewer parts, a lot less maintenance required for an electric vehicle than there is for an internal combustion engine vehicle. So at the end of the day, you'll see a decrease in the cost of vehicles. They will obviously have to be maintained as these services deliver mobility on demand. Batteries need to get replaced and vehicles need to be cleaned and things like that. You think the vehicles will get replaced more often so they still may only last for 100,000 miles and they're going to hit the 100,000 miles in a year. And like your phone, you might be upgrading the vehicle every couple of years or something or... That's probably the case or more likely what's going to happen is they're going to have swappable batteries. Your vehicle may be able to drive three, four, five hundred thousand miles, but at the end of the day, the battery may only last a hundred thousand. So the batteries will be pulled out, they'll be recycled, and then new batteries are put in to extend the life of the vehicle. Got it. That does add some sort of significant cost because if you have a shared vehicle, it could be doing a hundred thousand miles a year. Exactly. Besides for the fact that these are electric, when we're actually manufacturing the cars and manufacturing these vehicles, is that going to change? Is there going to be either shifting where it's being manufactured or shifting the expertise of how it's being manufactured? Really two things. It shifts who's doing the manufacturing. So if you think about mobility as demand, this is delivered right now by folks like Google Waymo and others. They're basically delivering these on-demand services. Well, you can manufacture those inexpensively in Vietnam or Taiwan or somewhere else, not necessarily made by your traditional automotive manufacturers like BMW or General Motors or something like that. So to some degree, who makes the vehicles will change. Obviously, the type of manufacturing changes, electric vehicles, far fewer parts. So if you look at supply chain, Detroit dominated automotive production because it needed a lot of parts and all the suppliers could build factories close to one another to reduce the supply chains. Well, that changes a little bit when you think about the electric cars. So how the manufacturing is done changes, who does it probably changes, but also again, who the customer is. Instead of selling to individuals through dealers, you'll see more and more of that shift to selling to these fleet operators that are managing these mobility on-demand services. Potentially, these places like Uber, which have been traditionally asset-light, could be extremely asset-heavy in the future. They could look a lot more like Hertz or something like that. That's exactly what happens. You gave us your prediction on these innings and stuff like that. But if you're a betting person, when are some of these things going to happen, do you think? Mobility as a service has already happened in several cities. You see it in Phoenix, you see it in Florida and a variety of cities and things like that. It will continue to grow, primarily in the urban areas. Again, well-mapped areas, well-understood, high density, high demand. But it'll take a decade or so until you see it sort of in most of the major top 50 cities being actively used. I don't think you'll see the internal combustion engine go away in our lifetimes, as with the transition from the horse-drawn carriage to the automobile, it takes time. And there's some areas that are still using horses. 
that's 130 years later. So it'll take time, but at the end of the day, it's a trend and it's really hard to buck that trend seeing what's happening right now in the market. In the world, like the future is already here, but it's just not evenly distributed. Many of us are essentially having on-demand self-driving cars already, but they just come with drivers. If you consider an Uber or Lyft that's out there, and I rarely ever drive myself anymore, except when I'm driving my kids or something somewhere. Do you just see this slowly happening? Just one day, there's just not going to be a driver in the car? How do you see this evolving over time? Exactly. Today, you take an Uber or Lyft, and there's a driver in the vehicle. And that driver is the biggest piece of the cost, I imagine. It is, today. exactly. So 70% of the cost when you take an Uber from point A to point B is the driver. The big motivator for going to autonomous is you eliminate 70% of the cost. So that trip that takes me from SFO to my meeting that used to be 40 bucks can now be half of that or a third of that or a quarter of that because now I don't have the driver to incur that cost. So that's really the big trend. And again, what you're going to see is this will eat more and more share from traditional taxis, traditional car rental companies, and then eventually Uber and Lyft will move more and more towards these automated drivers as opposed to having a human driver in the vehicle. It does seem to me just that it would be for personal transportation, my transportation or your personal transportation, that seems like the last thing on the list. Like you'd think it'd be, we would have automated driving for things like buses or for trucking or things where there's like a defined route and where you know it's always going to follow that road and someone could make sure that that route is good and stuff. And do you expect something like that to happen first somewhere more for the B2B side of things? Yeah, I think the long haul trucking will probably be the first thing to go autonomous. And the main reason is right now in the trucking industry, and you saw this with the supply chain issues, there's a huge desperate shortage of truck drivers. You and my kids are not growing up saying they want to be truck drivers and be on the road for 300 days out of the year. This idea that many have is you may have a driver that basically loads the truck and then gets it close to a freeway, and that vehicle may take off from New York and drive across the country and make a delivery. And again, the driver may pick it up on that last mile and make sure navigating it through the urban area and backing it into the depot. But at the end of the day, 99% of that trip can be done autonomously because it's on a freeway and it's relatively straightforward from an autonomous point of view to build the algorithms to do that. So I do think long-haul trucking, just given the need and given the amount of long-haul trucks on the road and given the need to drive down costs, I do think that's where you're going to see autonomous really be deployed in large numbers first. Now, I saw a report from McKinsey that they thought that the estimated global micro-mobility market, whether it's scooters or e-bikes, et cetera, is going to be worth somewhere between 300 to 500 billion by 2030, which is even bigger today than the e-hailing Uber Lyft side. Do you think that's actually possible or do you think that's just another McKinsey study? I think every study I ever read always has these 300 billion numbers and 500 billion numbers and they never really materialize. The reality is, like you said, there will be a market. It works great in certain cities. It doesn't work great in other cities. The interesting thing is when Seattle City paid for a bike sharing system, it was a disaster. And the reason it's a disaster is Seattle's on a hill. So everybody got these bikes to go down the hill, but nobody used the bikes to go up the hill. Oh God, it wasn't an e-bike. It was a real bike. No, it was a real bike. Exactly. That wouldn't work in San Francisco either. So different cities have different characteristics that make these things work or don't work. And again, there'll be a market, it'll be relatively big, but it's not going to be 100% of all the cities are going to be deployed through micromobility. Why haven't we seen more autonomous boats or autonomous planes? And Because that does seem like also an easier challenge than driving on a highway or within a city or something. You think about kind of the, the fixed versus variable cost. There's a massive fixed cost to that plane, fuel, everything else. The pilot is 
only a small portion of that cost. Exactly. Small portion of the cost. And of course, if that plane crashes, you just lost 300 lives. Again, if you're a truck on a road that's carrying cargo and that thing crashes, relatively minor loss of life relative to an airplane. So I think for the most part, planes today are already autonomous. I mean, they take off and land the newer planes pretty much by themselves. And you just have a pilot there to make sure that nothing goes wrong. So I think that will continue to happen because there's no real cost need for that. Shipping is a different topic. Again, I think this is another example like long-haul trucking where you may see freighter traffic going across the Atlantic or across the Pacific, and that can be done in a largely autonomous way. Now, you still may need a mechanic on there. You still may need some folks, but you don't need the number of folks that you had before. They're already pretty bare bones. They already have less than a dozen people usually, these huge ships. Now, as a car owner, the number one benefit, I think, of having an electric car is that just, I don't need to go to the gas station. It really just seems like that is by far the number one feature of the car. But these gas stations are big businesses and they have convenience stores attached to them. How do you think all the gas stations are going to be affected over time? They're going to go away. (laughs) I should be blunt about it, but the reality is most people that have an electric vehicle today are charging it in the garage. They're not charging it anywhere else. So the need for all the gas stations is going to decline, certainly over the next couple of decades as more and more EVs are on the road. I still go there like once a year to put air into my tires or something. I have not gone to a gas station to put air in my tires in probably 20 years because I can put air in the tires myself. Oh, you just do it yourself. Okay, at home. I think those will decline and you don't need four gas stations on every street corner like you have today. So the land use will redevelop those areas because they're obviously put in highly trafficked areas today. They're highly desirable real estate, but they'll slowly go away over time. Got it. Huge change in the economy there. No question about it. You'll see a massive change in the economy. It's not that easy for a gas station to go away because they're zoned in certain things. There's usually a big hazard system underneath them. Even when I've seen certain gas stations close down, they're often just like this weird vacant lots that no one's allowed to enter and they're eyesores for the community for a long time. So it is going to take a long time to make a transition there, I imagine. Well, that's right. And again, most people are not going to go completely electric overnight. Uh, I don't know about you, but electric works for me because, again, I don't drive that far to and from work. But we still have a gas-powered SUV So do we for when we want to go on a trip with our kids. So most people are going to have maybe one electric and one gas-powered for the foreseeable future to give them that optionality to go on long-haul trips. This is a data podcast from World of Das. What transportation data doesn't exist that you wish existed? There's a lot of things that don't exist that I wish existed. I wish there was a lot better safety data. If you look at the data that's collected. Where crashes are, those types of things. Exactly. So Enrix is a company, we collect incident data. So crash data where there's accidents and things like that. There is no global standard for collecting that data. And each state and each city collect it differently. So it's a massive aggregation problem. If you want to say where the most dangerous roads are, you've got to aggregate municipality by municipality and integrate that in. And it's all different format and different consistency and different quality. So that's one. There's other types of data, obviously camera data. The more cameras are on vehicles and that data gets collected, the more you can do things like image recognition, identify where stop signs and streetlights and parking restrictions and parking zones are. So as more and more of the city gets digitized, then you can have, like you said, a much more safer operation of these mobility on demand vehicles. Interesting. And are there types of sensors or data collection technology that you're really excited about? Right now, today, the vehicles have about two, 300 sensors on them. More OEMs are making that data available to third parties. 
anonymously. This isn't about tracking people, but it is about using it to do things like detect where there's hard braking or where there's airbike deployments and things like that that you can use to help improve these safety programs. So I think you'll see more and more of that data become available and then people like us and other companies take advantage of it. But yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunity, but I think most people are not counting on government deploying new sensors on the roads or new sensors in signals or anything like that, because it's just such a huge infrastructure cost. It's hard to imagine that you get to any critical mass globally at any reasonable time frame. I remember when tire pressure sensors came out, it wasn't that long ago, which I thought was just so cool. Are there things that are coming out or maybe in a small number of cars today, but you expect them to be all cars in the future that you're really excited about? The thing I get most excited about in vehicles are these ADAS capabilities, these assistant driving systems that basically do things like detect if you're not paying attention and the car in front of you slams on its brakes, your vehicle will stop automatically. It does that using, obviously, things like LiDAR and things like that. My son bought a $25,000 car and it came with lane change. Basically, it won't let you change lanes into the car next to you if there's a car next to you. It's a partial autonomous level three type of capability. That before was only in a luxury car and now it's standard in most cars. Exactly. So you'll see more and more of that and that has a huge potential to save lives. You've got... 1.1 million lives killed every year on the roadways. So as those technologies deploy, you can rapidly bring down the number of fatalities on the roads. How do you think about the battle for the dashboard and the entertainment system and the nav that's going on in all these cars? Because you've got Apple and Google trying to encroach in. You have some of the other players that have been doing it for a while, the here, the telenavs, some of the car manufacturers themselves. You have some of them trying to do homegrown systems like a Tesla, or maybe a few others are trying to do homegrown system. How do you see that all converging over time? Great question. And it depends on what the use case is. So the dashboard in the car will not go away. You still need the dashboard to operate the car, operate the vehicle functions and things like that. Obviously, as more vehicles become autonomous, level three, level four, you'll see more and more of that integrated into the software. You don't need all that instrumentation if your vehicle is going to be driving itself. But obviously, that software capability needs to get much richer than it is today. In terms of infotainment, I want to listen to my music. I want to listen to something else. World of Dash podcast, for instance, is a very common thing people listen to in their cars. I think Apple and Google win that war. They pretty much already have. Every vehicle shipping today, for the most part, has CarPlay and Android Auto. People are used to their phones. They just want to plug it in and have it work. And I think those will dominate in terms of the traditional infotainment functions. One of the things I found is whenever I rent a car, I can't figure out every car is a different like cruise control system or something like that. So basically, don't use cruise control whenever I rent a car because it's so hard. You have to get in the manual and it takes some time to go do that. If it all goes autonomous, it doesn't matter, but there's probably many, many years before it goes autonomous. Do you think these things become standardized or do you think it's always going to be every Ford's going to be different, every Toyota's going to be different, every BMW, et cetera? Unfortunately, I don't think there's any forcing function for the OEMs to try and make them consistent. They all like to differentiate. They all think their way is best. So at the end of the day, yeah, I think they're going to continue to be different. I rented a car this last weekend when I was down in San Jose, and it took me about five minutes to figure out how to start that car and get it out of the parking <laughs> lot because it had such a weird setup in terms of how it was configured. So unfortunately, since cars are made all over the place, Germany, Japan, Korea, et cetera, different preferences come into play in terms of the designer, and they feel like that's their competitive advantage. So they'll continue to be different in terms of how they're operated. Now, Imrix is in 88 countries, and you mentioned earlier 
the data landscape varies not only country by country, but even county by county. As a company that has to deal with that, is a lot of this just like an ETL thing that you have to do where you're really trying to do all this translation? Or how do you think about all these different types of data versions? That's a great question. Each country is somewhat different. We don't really collect a lot of data from states and municipalities. We do try and collect safety data and things like that. And that's very different by region. And that's a big pain point. But for the most part, when we're collecting data from mobile phones or from cars or from trucks, we figured out each provider provides it in a different format, but we're very good at taking that, normalizing it, and then building our services, whether it's traffic or parking or analytics on top of it. So I don't really view that as the blocking issue. I think the biggest issue right now in the market is you have some countries, specifically in the Middle East and in Asia, Russia, that have data protection issues or require you to process data in market, which makes it very hard. You have to make sure the server's there and they have to have access to the keys to that data and stuff like that. Exactly. China's probably the worst because China requires you to have all the servers in the market. You can't transfer data out of that market. They've definitely tilted the landscape to the local companies as opposed to companies like ours that try and operate globally. So there's certain countries that are very difficult to work in. And this is why you don't see services in markets significantly like China or Russia, where providers like us can operate in an efficient way. Because there are all these sensors, there's these hundreds of sensors on the car. Some of them are taking in data, which is very, very, very small, very small bits of data, which are easily transferred. But some of them are taking in real motion video and even compressed is still very, very, very large. How do you think that transfer of that data is going to change over time? And how are things like 5G affecting those transfers? If you look at, like I said, the vehicle today, most of the video data or heavy data, audio data, and things like that are processed in the vehicle, basically using edge computing, and then bits are transferred off that are basically collected and processed. Very few people are offloading camera just because it's super expensive. Maybe when it docks and Wi-Fi or something, you can do some of that. Exactly. So yeah, in terms of 5G, the big benefit there is you've got a lot faster transfer speed. You can do things like that. But until the costs really come down, I think what folks are going to do is I've seen some providers, for instance, if a vehicle gets into an accident or the airbag deploys or something like that, they'll take the last 10 seconds of video footage and then offload that to the cloud, much like your ring camera. Your ring camera at your home doesn't film and put it in the cloud every second of every day. It takes the most interesting things and offloads that. And I think that's what you'll see with 5G. That makes sense. Inrix buys data from SafeGraph. Thank you for being a customer. SafeGraph has data about points of interest and physical places. But how do you make this decision of build versus buy versus partner when it comes to data? Well, so for us, we aggregate enormous amount of data, 650 different data providers that we collect data from and then process. And for us, it's really a portfolio management problem. We're looking for data in certain countries. So in our 88 countries, who has good data in different countries? We also care a lot about different types of data. So truck data is different than car data. Parking data, we get data from parking meters and smart parking garages and things like that. So for us, it's all about we know what products we want to ship, and then we look for the data that's really going to be the best ingredient. So it's no different than making a cake. You want the best ingredients, and you want to be able to make that cake everywhere. So different places, you have to source it differently, but that's really how we look at it. And then some data we do collect ourselves. So incident data is a good example. We have a team of folks globally that are looking at every city where there's accidents and construction and events. And how did you make that decision? It's just no one else was doing a good job. You were trying to buy it. And then it's like, oh, we can't buy it. We have to go do it. I imagine it's not the first thing to be like, oh, we're going to go spend millions of dollars <laughs> in fixed costs to go collect this data ourselves. Exactly. Nobody else is doing it. 
There's only like two companies in the world that collect this type of incident data on a global scale, and you just can't get it anywhere else. So we had to build up a team and a capability to do They that. weren't willing to sell it to you, so you had to do it, essentially. They were a competitor of ours. They were going to license it to us. That makes sense. Now, some of these cards are moving into, and not just cars, everybody nowadays wants a subscription business and they want to move into a subscription business. And I saw you tweet about this silly thing that BMW did trying to make people pay for random features in the car, like heated seats or something. You pay an extra 15 bucks a month to get your butt warm or something. But how do you see that coming in? Like, How do you think these cars are going to start getting into the subscription model? So a couple of thoughts. First of all, people in general hate subscriptions, especially for things that are not delivered as a service. So I'll subscribe to Disney Plus because I get new content every month. Yes. Spotify is amazing. Exactly. But for a heated seat, it's built in with the car. Why am I paying a subscription model for that? So the service has to map to the consumer's expectation of how it's delivered over time. The second thing we've seen, I have a son in the video game industry, and you've seen a massive pushback against these microtransaction models where, oh, I need a loot box or I need a new gun. I got to go pay a buck for that to make me more competitive in the game that I'm playing. There was a massive pushback from people because they hate feeling like they're nickel and dime. Yes. Everyone hates being nickel and dime. They'd rather just pay more than being nickel and dime. So if I'm paying $75,000 for a luxury vehicle, don't nickel and dime me and make me pay for my heated seat or make me pay for some feature that I feel like should be part of the purchase price of the vehicle. But it is like a weird expectation. When you're on a plane, you feel like getting that Sprite should be free. But if you want to get a glass of wine, you understand maybe you should pay or something like that. Somehow it's in the psyche that Sprite is free, but wine you have to pay for. It's very hard to know sometimes, especially if it's new, what should be included in the price and what could be like an add-on. It all boils down to customer expectations. Airlines set the expectation that the Sprite and the peanuts are free, but you're going to pay for the lunch and the wine. People have gotten used to that and that's their expectation. In my car, when I buy it, why do I have to pay a subscription for that now? So again, it's all relative to matching the service or the features with the consumer expectations. A couple of personal questions. You grew up in Detroit where you started your career at Ford before moving to Microsoft. You sound like in your DNA, you're a car person from the beginning. Is that how you think about it? Like, I'm born to do this job? No, no. In fact, just the opposite. I wanted to go work for a big tech company when I was graduating. IBM ruled the world. But then there was a hiring freeze and a recession when I graduated college. And I ended up having to go to Ford because IBM had a hiring freeze. I always wanted to go into tech, but I ended up in automotive. And then even at Microsoft, which I went to after grad school, I ran different businesses there until I ended up running the automotive business and got back into automotive. So for some reason, I keep ended up back in the automotive industry one way or another which is fine with me. But at the end of the day, that was not my intent starting out. If one looks at your resume, it does look like it's a little bit more planned. So <laughs> that's really interesting. You're also one of the few tech CEOs, at least, that openly talk about their faith. Why do you think it's so rare in the tech world? I think there's a stigma in the tech world. It tends to skew towards certain political parties and certain views in terms of faith and issues like that. I found an awful lot of people in the tech world do have faith, whether it's Christianity, which I am, or Jewish people, or Muslims and Hindus, but no one likes to talk about it. So I think that's unfortunate because my faith is a very important part of my life. It's how I run my business. I really believe in honesty and integrity in terms of working with customers and with negotiating deals and things like that. So I think people should feel free to talk about their faith and how it influences how they do business. It doesn't seem like it does pervade the tech world. Is it just because those types of maybe more faith-based people are not as likely to go into tech as to maybe other types of fields or tech people 
maybe they don't believe in God as much, or why do you think that happens? Well, I do think there is the naturalistic philosophy where people in tech tend to be certainly more scientific, more engineering, and tend to reject things of faith. But what I found is there's a lot of people in the tech community that have faith and go to church or synagogue or somewhere else. They just don't like talking about it because they feel like there's a stigma to it. I think people are surprised that there's actually a poll in tech in terms of looking at people's faith. You'd be surprised that it's a much higher number than what I think most people would assume. What I found is, I would say maybe 20 years ago, 15 years ago, I did see that very few people had any type of core faith that I met in the tech world. But recently, there's been this belief amongst at least a lot of AI researchers that they're part of some sort of simulation. So they're essentially creationists. They believe very, very strongly in a creationist, essentially believe in a God because they believe they're in some sort of simulation. And so we're seeing this move of people who are very, very creationist. I would say more than 50% of top AI engineers are essentially have gone from complete atheist to creationist over the last decade or so. Do you see something similar happening? Yeah, and I don't think it's just AI. If you look at what we've learned about DNA over the last 50 years, Bill Gates said DNA is computer code. It's just a lot more sophisticated than anything we've ever created. Well, think about that. Microsoft has, whatever, 100,000 programmers creating code, and the DNA in one cell is more complicated than that. So as we've learned about information theory, as we've learned about what DNA is and how it works, it's very hard to explain that through random chance and mutation. So I think that's one example. You look at physics, it's very hard to explain the parameters of physics and sort of look at how finely tuned the universe is without thinking about, is there some sort of supernatural cause for that? I tend to agree with you. The more we learn, the more you sort of have to come up with these explanations for how the intelligence got there or how this universe got here, independent of just naturalistic explanations. Last question we ask all of our guests, what conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice? <laughs> I give you two. First of all, you know, everyone romanticizes about the garage phase of a startup when it's three people in a garage and how wonderful that is. I don't know about you, Orrin, but that was the worst couple of years of my life. It just really sucked. <laughs> Why was it so bad? Well, because you have no money. You've got no people. No one will answer your phone call in terms of big customers that you're trying to talk to. That's still true for me. No one will answer my phone calls. <laughs> So I went from Microsoft where everybody would answer your phone call when you call up and you say- All right, I'm from Microsoft, yes. Whereas when you're starting out, nobody knows who you are. So that's, I think, counterintuitive number one. But the other is this idea of follow your passion. I've sort of told my kids this as they were growing up. Everyone says, follow your passion and you can't go wrong in life. And to some degree, that's true. You want to do something that you like doing. But what I found is you kind of have to follow opportunities. I didn't start out saying I wanted to be in the transportation space and pioneer this idea of using GPS signals to create traffic. We just sort of came up with the idea and thought it would be interesting and started pursuing it. And lo and behold, now I'm in the transportation space. So I think you kind of have to be open to doors that present themselves and be willing to walk through them, regardless of whether it's 100% in alignment with your passion or only 80% alignment with your passion. That's great. One more random question just came to me. So you're Brian with a Y, B-R-Y-A-N. Obviously, there's also the Brian with the I. How do you think those tribes differ? Like, do you think you'd be a different person if you were Brian with an I versus Brian with a Y? <laughs> so it would certainly make my life easier because I wouldn't have to spell both my first name and my last name <laughs> when I talk to folks. But the funny thing is, Oren, I met another Brian Mistily with a Y. He's in Germany. We're Facebook friends and he works at the Porsche car company. Oh my gosh. Wow. So like you guys have had very, very similar lives. One of our investors and partners. So yeah, it's a small world. It really is. 
<laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Brian, for joining us on World of Desk. I follow you at Brian, M-I-B-R-Y-A-N-M-I at Twitter. And I encourage all of our listeners to follow you and engage with you there. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Oren. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of DAS, and DAS is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you.